This is an ABC podcast. The Whitlam government's troubles started out as this series of disconnected scandals and missteps. Each one of them was like a distinct crisis. The loans affair, the love affair between Jim Cairns and Junie Morosi, the tensions with the US and the intelligence agencies. But by 1975, all those threads had started getting tangled up wrapping around each other and converging into one rolling catastrophe. And a man who until then had always sat on the sidelines of our politics, the Governor-General, became the pivotal player. Mr Fraser, why did the Governor-General call you to Government House yesterday? Well, it was a private conversation and uh, it was a very friendly conversation. Fraser threatened Kerr that day at Yarralumwa. No question. The Governor-General takes the advice from his Prime Minister. It sent the shivers down his spine. He said, you've got to get the message through to Whitlam. I'm Alex Mann, and this is The Eleventh. The game of politics is partly a game of bluff, and sometimes that means concealing your true thoughts or intentions. But it's pretty easy to slip up or accidentally let your guard down. It could be a thoughtless comment or just a look that betrays your real feelings. And during this political crisis, there was one person perfectly positioned to see exactly that kind of unguarded moment. His name was Clifton Pugh, and he painted portraits. Well, what time will you finish with Whitlam on Thursday? Well, I won't be finished with him for about half past four. When politicians sat for portraits... Clifton's wife, Judith, was often by his side. They were kind of a double act. Do you want to paint him on the Friday? Yeah. I was very pretty at the time, and because he liked to have me around with him and because I was bright, I suppose, I was always like this little doll he'd brought along. While Clifton painted, Judith would chat with the person who was sitting for the portrait. They also tended to relax because I got them chatting So they would often tell me things that they wouldn't ordinarily have told me. So if I found somebody who was painting whose politics I didn't agree with, I never said anything, I just let them be themselves because I thought, well, what we want is the portrait to show what you like. The Pews lived on this rambling property about an hour's drive from the centre of Melbourne. It was like their own little slice of bohemian utopia and they loved to share it. This was a beautiful, beautiful area. And just at the end of the train line, just at the bottom of the drive, was a sign saying, Clifton Pugh, did you ring first? Because we got a lot of drop-ins. They regularly hosted some of Australia's most powerful social and political elite. And one of the reasons that Cliff and I became very influential was politicians started coming as soon as... from 1972, because we could provide them with accommodation... When an important guest arrived at the gates, it was almost as if the stress of their high-pressure life would start to melt away as they entered a sort of strange paradise. And then you went into a house that he had built by hand of mud bricks made on the site. And it had just lovely spaces in it, lots of light. The pews had created a kind of refuge from the outside world, and not just for people... If you came for a drink, if I opened the cupboard to get out a drink and some glasses, there would be a possum. I'd always pick up a banana and give the possum a banana or a bit of apple. So, possums in the cupboard and under the visitors' beds, wombats. And they would come, they would wake you up, you know, to play in the morning. You had to sort of, we were constantly trying to contain them. But they were lovely. They're, They're like a dog, I mean, except they just do these little nice, neat sort of poos. In 1975, no less than the Governor-General of Australia, Sir John Kerr, visited the property. He was there to sit for a portrait, and he was too busy to stay overnight. As usual, Judith was in the room to chat with him. I was surprised because when I was talking to Kerr, I thought, as a governor, he inappropriately discussed legislation and politics with me. Kerr was not discreet. Besides being talkative... Kerr was relaxed and cheerful, and the painting was going well. Just to do a likeness, a look and put of them, that's quite easy. But there was something about Kerr's portrait that was troubling Clifton. The expression on the face is not 
quite right. There was this little curl in the lip that just kept creeping into the painting, that in reality wasn't there. Judith says it made the Governor-General look sort of like he was sneering. Every time he painted Kerr, there was this curl in the lip, and then he would take it out, because it wasn't evident, and it would come back again. You know, look at, stand back to look at the portrait and think, bucker, and take it out again. To finish the painting of Sir John Kerr, Clifton Pugh went to visit him at Government House in Canberra, the Governor-General's official residence. Government House is this white, stately mansion on 53 hectares of parkland. Clifton was alone this time, no Judith, but he told her about what happened next. The portrait itself came quite fast because Kerr was very forward, you know, very... He wasn't standing on ceremony and he wasn't nervous. Clifton was a supporter of Whitlam's, and as he was painting, something happened that made him worried for Whitlam's future. Cliff told me that Curve's secretary came in and said, oh, the, the Prime Minister has just said that you will do what he wants. And he said he, Cliff, saw Kerr change. And he was so angry that he had changed his position. Clifton also told someone else about his concerns. Someone who'd spent a fair amount of time with the Governor-General. I, meanwhile, had become very friendly with Clifton Pugh, and I was in fairly constant contact with Clifton while he was painting the portrait. It was Elizabeth Reid, the women's advisor to the Prime Minister. One day, Cliff rang me, very concerned, and said, do you know what the Governor-General is saying? And I said, yes, he's talking about sacking Whitlam, isn't he? And Cliff said, yes. He said, you've got to get the message through to Whitlam. But Judith Pugh says Clifton was never 100% sure. All he had was a kind of a hunch. If Kerr had said to him, I'm going to go to Smithland, he would have told Whitlam. When Clifton rang, my reaction was a very complex one because I'd had this past with the man. Elizabeth Reid was convinced that Sir John Kerr was capable of doing something drastic. I had experienced this sense of entitlement, sense of, I'm the most important person in this nation. I knew they were exactly the sort of sentiments or feelings of grandeur that he had, he exuded. It was obvious to Elizabeth Reid that the Whitlam government was in danger. But little did she know, so was she. It was September 1975, and Elizabeth was flat out preparing for an event called the Women and Politics Conference. It was an event that would ultimately lead to the end of her career in government. What we wanted to do was to bring together women from all backgrounds, from right across Australia, no matter where, and to honour their political concerns, to honour their political involvement, More than 700 women converged on Canberra for the event, and they were from a huge range of different backgrounds and political persuasions. Canberra is playing host this week to almost 1,000 women from all over the country. And the controversy started with the opening address. Women are in politics. They know how to organise. Whitlam had agreed to open the event, but his speech was drowned out by protesters. Some of the women attending the conference took Whitlam's appearance as an opportunity to demonstrate for more action on Indigenous land rights and against his government's foreign policy stance in East Timor. Now is the time to define and formulate their demands and to seek a full share in political power and leadership. In the building's toilets, someone had used lipstick to write Lesbians are lovely on the mirrors. And by the end of the first day... All the statues in the foyer of Parliament House had been decorated with bras and feminist banners. It was just chaos, absolute chaos. Whatever success the conference had in bringing women together, after the spectacle of the opening night, that was all the press could talk about. Parliament House has never seen anything quite like it. The conference has been controversial from the beginning. Its critics have questioned the expenditure of more than $100,000 for women to come together. For a press pack that had been ridiculing Elizabeth Reid since before she even got the job, this was prime fodder. One editorial called the women squabbling libbers. Another labelled the event one big boob. When women raised concerns about the coverage, the Daily Telegraph wrote, If you can't take the heat, get back in the kitchen. 
What happened next has stayed with Elizabeth Reid her entire life. I can remember being called into Whitlam's office. There were three men in the room. When I arrived, I didn't know what it was about at all. There were all these press clippings of, of all the things that happened, particularly during the Women in Politics conference. The article screamed back at Elizabeth about the controversy of the opening night, about the lipstick on the mirrors, the bras on the statues and the women protesting behind Whitlam. The argument was that because those headlines had hit the press, the electorate was going to turn against what Whitlam was doing for women. And so I'm not saying the headlines weren't unfortunate, but you could also see it as a joke if you want to. I mean, there was, there was humour in all this. It was hilarious. But Whitlam's advisers didn't find it funny. They'd been buried under a seemingly endless stream of controversies, and they saw the negative headlines as a threat to the government. So they'd decided to shift her out of Whitlam's office and into the public service. And it wasn't a proposal ever put to me. It was put being an argument being made to Whitlam that he had to separate himself from me. Elizabeth is careful to say that she doesn't blame Whitlam for this. I don't think that those three men were right in what they were saying to Whitlam, but they cornered him. I felt he was like a noble stag being cornered by hunters. Whitlam's staff argued that by moving Elizabeth away from the PM's office, they'd ensure that the role of women's advisor would exist regardless of who was Prime Minister. But Elizabeth didn't see it that way. There was no way I was going into the bureaucracy, full stop. That wasn't what I was there for. It was, I, I just felt it was really an attempt to tie me down, to gag me, to shut me up, silence me and get me out of the way. It was clear to me what I had to do. I had no option. Elizabeth waited until Goff was alone and then went back in to see him. He was standing and I was standing. My memory was that the tears were rolling down my cheeks while I told him what I thought. And, uh, and he was no more comfortable than I was. Elizabeth had decided that instead of being silenced, she was going to quit. I told him I had decided to resign. And, you know, it was a pretty emotional scene. I had tears running down my face. He was visibly upset. She had one more thing to do before she left Whitlam's office for the last time. She had to deliver a warning. And I said to him, look, by the way, before I leave, I want you to know Clifton Pugh has called me on more than one occasion and told me that the Governor-General can talk of nothing when he's sitting with his portrait but of how he's going to topple you. But she says that the importance of what she was saying just didn't seem to land. It was a threat to his political survival, and he seemed unwilling or unable to hear it. Not for the first or last time, Whitlam ignored a warning sign. And I think that the tension between Whitlam and myself was so great, I don't think those words ever sank in. And it's, very, it's interesting to ask yourself why. I just think he, he couldn't hear what I was trying to tell him about the Governor-General. Elizabeth turned and left Whitlam. She packed her stuff and left her office, and within a few days, she'd packed her bags and left the country too. It would be 40 years before she returned to live permanently in Australia. Describe myself as a political refugee, a refugee from the media. In the earlier years of Whitlam's government, he'd seemed confident that he could ride out the scandals and just focus on the program. But by 1975, that strategy had started to come unstuck. Elizabeth wasn't the only person to resign or be pushed out that year. As the pressure mounted on Whitlam, more members of the team would be forced out. His government was now in survival mode. And with the one prominent female face in the government's ranks gone, what was left was a fight between men for political power. And that fight became all the more intense when the opposition appointed a new leader. The 64 members of the Parliamentary Liberal Party emerged with a new leader, Mr Malcolm Fraser. 
Fraser took the government's many problems, the struggling economy, the loans affair, the Morosi affair, and turned them into a single line of attack. He said the people of Australia no longer trusted Whitlam's government. There are so many major issues uh, that involve this government. I've used the analogy before, but Australians are like a boxer who's been in the ring, hit too often, and not realising the severity of the blows that are still being rained on him. Fraser was an Oxford graduate from a wealthy farming family. When he became leader in March 1975, he didn't just match Whitlam with his biting parliamentary rhetoric. At nearly two metres tall, he was the same height as Whitlam, and for some reason that mattered. One opposition MP said question time was now like watching two bulls equal in size and equal in determination. Each man was a giant in physical terms, but also a giant in terms of their ambition. These days, Paul Kelly is the editor-at-large at the Australian newspaper. But back in 1975, he was a junior political reporter just a few years into the job. It was the absolute perfect time to join the press gallery. The world was changing. Politics was being transformed. And the two men intent on transforming it were Whitlam and Fraser. Whitlam was a great reformer a fatalist, a crash-through or crash-politician that saw himself as fundamentally changing the nation's direction. Yet he was deeply flawed, had a poor understanding of human nature and was a terrible tactician and strategist. Malcolm Fraser, on the other hand, saw himself as the defender of the old order, the defender of the true Australia against Labor's recklessness, against Labor's demolition. In his retirement, Fraser was known as a man with a moderate, gentle demeanour and as a defender of refugee and human rights. But if that's the image of Fraser in your head, park it. That's not what he was known for when he became opposition leader. Politically, at least back then, he was a tough nut. Paul Kelly likes to say that he had a predilection for political violence. Fraser was a hardliner. He came from the conservative wing of the Liberal Party. He was a traditionalist, he was a patriot, he was a man of discipline, but he had a powerful sense of ambition and now he sought to destroy Whitlam. Fraser had a powerful weapon at his disposal. While Whitlam had control over the House of Representatives, it was Fraser who controlled the numbers in the Senate. That meant the government really couldn't get much done without Fraser's okay. And right from the start, Fraser set up the terms of the coming showdown. He told journalists that the government should be allowed to serve its full term, unless... Unless uh, particularly reprehensible and tragic events occur, I believe a government that continues to have a majority in the lower house has a right to expect that it can govern. Exactly what that meant, and when something would qualify as reprehensible, was the subject of wild speculation... Every scandal, slip-up and mistake would prompt a barrage of stories from the press gallery. They were like children in the backseat of the car asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Has the opposition been handed its reprehensible circumstance on a platter? Mr Fraser may have found his reprehensible grounds for forcing an election. Uh, This could provide the reprehensible circumstances that Mr Fraser's been looking for. It created a sense that anything could happen at any time. I think it'll be an early election, madam? All I know is, Mr Fraser, when he says the time's right, that's when it'll be. I think the same. I think that he's, he's doing a very good job and it's just a matter of time and he'll have him out. In such a tense political environment, Whitlam needed all of his ministers on their best behaviour. But that's not what he got. Instead of stability, he got cock-ups and disobedience and it provided Fraser with a series of incredible political opportunities. The first one came when the loans affair reared its head again, that ill-advised project to source a huge loan from an overseas broker. This time, it was Jim Cairns who'd be caught up in it, the Treasurer and Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. Cairns was still on that journey of self-discovery with Junie Morosi, but that's not what got him in trouble. Turns out he'd been on the hunt for a big loan too, but without Willem's authority, and he'd been accused of offering a big commission to someone he shouldn't have. In Parliament, he denied offering anyone a commission, right up to the moment that a letter turned up, with his signature on it, offering the commission. And when that happened, Whitlam sacked him. Meeting of the Parliamentary Labour Party in Canberra today 
endorsed the Prime Minister's decision and removed Dr. Cairns from the job of Deputy Prime Minister. Dr. Cairns uh, had his uh, commission terminated because, uh, on the facts as they appear, he has misled the House of Representatives. Would you allow Dr. Cairns to serve ever as a minister again under you? No. And that was that. Jim Cairns' political career was now over. Dr Cairns appeared grim and red-eyed as he was escorted from the airport by three Commonwealth policemen and driven away in a Commonwealth car. Dr Cairns said... Everything that uh, should be said should be said within the Australian Labor Party itself. Now that, gentlemen, applies to all the questions you might like to ask me. Whitlam tried to minimise the fallout and insisted that now Cairns was gone... So were the problems he'd created. There have been some extraordinary circumstances, namely the circumstances which led me uh, to terminate uh, Dr Cairns's uh, commission. But uh, uh, nobody has doubted, Mr Fraser hasn't doubted, that I did the correct thing. Journalists then turned to Fraser. What about now? Does this count as reprehensible? And then, of course, the ball will be in Mr Fraser's court. He and his party will have to decide if these are grounds enough to block supply in the Senate and thus precipitate a general election. But for Fraser, this didn't meet the threshold for a truly reprehensible event. He needed another trigger. And pretty soon, he got one, in the form of another scandal involving a Whitlam minister. This time, it was the guy who started the whole loans affair, the guy with the dream to take back control of Australia's mines, the Minister for Minerals and Energy, Rex the Strangler, Connor. The overseas loans affair has blown up again. Mr Kemlani is back in the headlines again today. There are as many as 18 telex messages, which we're told are direct communications between Mr Kemlani and Mr Connor. Rex Connor had been told explicitly by Whitlam, way back in May, to stop chasing after the loan. But he was so committed to buying back Australia's mines that he ignored Whitlam and kept communicating with Kemlani, the loans broker, in secret. Rex was sitting up at night next to the teleprinter, hoping and waiting that there'd be some authorised, some proposal coming through. He had this great vision and it was all crumbling. And when the media found out in October, Connor had to go. And the clear implication here is, is twofold. Either Mr Connor misled Mr Whitlam or Mr Whitlam misled the parliament. Whitlam knew that Rex Connor had become an extreme liability. So he sent the head of his department, John Menadue, to tell the man they called the Strangler that his political career was over. And he told me to go down and see Rex and ask for his resignation. And Rex was on the ground level almost immediately below the Prime Minister's office in Old Pale in the House. So I, with some trepidation, went down to see the Strangler. And uh, he was not as physically intimidating then as he had been, but I put the case to him that the, the Prime Minister wanted his resignation. And Rex, not surprisingly, told me to piss off. Um, And I did. Whitlam would have to do the dirty work of forcing Rex Connor out himself. And he then persuaded Rex that he should resign, which he did. And, of course, that set off another wave of opportunities for Malcolm Fraser. Good evening and welcome to TDT. And once again, Canberra was the centre of attention today with Mr Fraser in the limelight as everyone waited breathlessly for the word on whether or not the opposition leader would reject supply and force new elections. Fraser now had a choice to make. He'd seen what had happened in 1974 and how blocking the government's agenda had pushed Whitlam to call an election. But going one further and actually blocking supply, effectively denying the government the money it needed to do its job... That would be a huge gamble, something no one had ever done before, with a real potential of backfiring on Fraser and turning public opinion against him. If he chose to do it, and it went badly, he'd probably be out of a job. Fraser checked in with his team. Everyone agreed. Rex Connor's sacking was the reprehensible act they'd been looking for. And on the day after Connor resigned, at 2.56pm, they decided to move. The opposition now has no choice. We will use the power vested in us by the Constitution and delay the passage of the government's money bill through the Senate 
until the parliament goes to the people. Because there is no other way that the Australian people can be given the opportunity to judge this disreputable government. This basically meant that the Senate had cut off the flow of money. The clock was now ticking. In a matter of months, the government would completely run out of cash. Government employees wouldn't get paid, and everything would grind to a halt. Many people would not have done it. Many leaders would not have taken this decision. But Fraser was prepared to take the decision, was prepared to accept responsibility for it. Fraser wanted to force Whitlam into an early election. And journalist Paul Kelly says it was now clear Fraser would do almost anything to get it. The Liberals had convinced themselves that radical steps were needed to save the country. When you looked at the economy, when you looked at the loans affair, the Whitlam government was beyond the pale that it had to be removed in the national interest. And there was almost a sense of moral imperative about it. This is what people call the supply crisis, where the opposition and the government entered a high-stakes stalemate, each side daring the other to blink. Would Fraser back down and let the government serve its full term? Or would Whitlam bow to the pressure and call an early election? Something like this had literally never been done before. The opposition knew that if the crisis went on for too long, they would wear the blame. They needed something that would keep the political pressure focused on the government. One of the guys charged with finding that something was an ambitious young MP. His name was John Howard. So after only a short period of time in Parliament, I was involved in this momentous political process and there was a lot of drama. John Howard would later become one of Australia's longest-serving Prime Ministers. But in 1975, he was a 30-something MP on the rise, convinced of the path his party had taken. We were simply saying that uh, we're not going to pass this legislation until you agree to have an election. In his short time in Parliament, Howard had already been promoted to a front bench position. So he was in those meetings when Fraser decided to block supply. Now, as the crisis dragged on, he could see that pressure was mounting on Fraser. And they just hoped that the election could be agreed to quickly so you wouldn't have this ongoing tension. Then, in the midst of all that tension, Fraser and the opposition had some luck. Because it's at this point, when it seemed like politics couldn't get any crazier, that like a zombie that refuses to die, the Kemlani loans affair rose again from the grave. Why does Mr Kemlani keep on returning to Australia? Well, you'd, you'd have to ask Mr Kemlani that. Uh, I've never met the gentleman, I've never spoken to him. By this point, the loans affair was supposed to be finished. Whitlam had ordered his MPs to stop searching for the loan in May. He'd sacked Rex Connor and Jim Cairns over it. But now, when he was politically at his most vulnerable, the loans broker, Tirath Kemlani, arrived in Australia. Would you agree that it's very convenient for the opposition that he does keep popping up like this? I think it's very, very embarrassing for the government that he does. Kemlani appeared on TV and radio. Now everyone wanted to know what Whitlam knew of the whole affair and when. You've stated that Mr Whitlam knew of your continued dealings with Mr Connor after May 20 this year. What is your irrefutable proof? Oh my God, that's a very hard question, isn't it? Technical and everything. I think I've got to be careful on that answer. Kemlani had popped up just when the Liberals needed him. And his media appearances gave the opposition hope that maybe, just maybe they could directly link Whitlam to the loans affair. Well, Mr Whitlam has said that he definitely had no knowledge. You say that you believe he did. Did he have any knowledge of anything that was going on after the May? Mm. That's particularly what we're talking about. Now, I'll put the question to you. If you were the head of some corporation or anything, would you not expect that you will know important things and none of your uh, directors or none of your managers or general managers would do anything without your knowledge? What Kemlani was hinting at is the possibility that Whitlam knew more about what his ministers were up to than he was letting on. But what everyone wanted to know was whether Kemlani had any proof to back it up. It was reported that Kemlani had arrived in Australia with a suitcase full of documents. If there was proof in those documents linking Whitlam to the scandal, 
the opposition would gain the upper hand in the crisis. So Fraser sent his young gun John Howard and another more senior MP to speak with Kemlani. I don't know that I saw the interview in Kemlani as an opportunity to prove myself, but I saw, saw a sort of thing that I might have some skills for, having practised as a solicitor and got very used to taking statements from people. What happened next was a moment of levity in the middle of one of the deepest crises in Australian political history. Well, after an afternoon of car chases, constant door knocking and waiting, we're still not much better informed about Mr Kemlani. It's almost been like a rerun of an episode from the Keystone Cops. Howard and his colleague needed to find a private spot, away from the media, where they could talk with Kemlani and go through his suitcase of potentially juicy documents. Reporters told the story on the night's news bulletins. When Mr Kemlani arrived in Canberra, he was met by two members of the staff of the Deputy Leader of the Opposition... And a government MP recounted the story in all its glorious detail in Parliament. I understand the gentleman approached the Commonwealth car dressed in a safari suit and wearing dark glasses. The two men sped off with Mr Kemlani in a Commonwealth car and a lot of luggage, eight suitcases in fact. And taken on a high-speed car chase through the back streets of Fishwick, reaching, reaching speeds of 100 kilometres per hour. Bit of a, an embellishment, but... They were following you, but what, not chased? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, something like that, yes. Trying to elude the constant company of a group of newsmen, they drove to the Wellington Hotel Motel. Then refreshments of lemonade and chips were taken in. A short while ago, his solicitor left the motel with the suitcases. In one version of this story, there's you, lemonade, a packet of chips and a locked hotel room somewhere in Kem. So hang on a second. Did you bring the snacks or was that something he had had a cup of tea? He had some peanuts and lemonade. As if he wasn't in enough trouble without being locked up all night with two opposition members. And fed with peanuts. And fed with peanuts. Despite the drama of the occasion, everybody found that very amusing, including me. But it was it was all good fun and, and understandable in the occasion. It helped to lighten the, the mood of the house because the mood of the house was quite tense because there was a lot at stake. In the end, Howard's search turned up nothing of substance. His party's hopes of tying Whitlam to the Kemlani affair were fading. It was nearly November and supply had been blocked for more than two weeks. Fears of a total government shutdown were growing and public opinion was starting to shift back against the opposition. Fraser was coming under extreme pressure. Latest opinion polls are suggesting that people are not behind Mr Fraser's stand on supply. According to the poll conducted by the Sydney Morning Herald, 70% of Australia's capital city voters think the Senate should allow supply to pass and over half think that Labor should continue to govern. To make things worse for Fraser, blocking supply had achieved what Whitlam had always struggled to achieve, the unification of the government into a focused and disciplined team. Previously, Whitlam's MPs had been dogged by scandals, disorganised and divided. But now they were united against Fraser and determined to tough it out. Reporters turned their focus from Whitlam right back onto Fraser. Mr Fraser, you've only been leader of your party since March. You've taken on a great political battler in the Prime Minister. You yourself must be under a certain amount of, of strain. Are you, are you feeling that strain at all? Well, in what way feeling the strain? There are things to do. There's plenty of activity. Sometimes I'd like an extra hour or two sleep that I get, but um, we're set on a course. We're going to win that course. If Fraser was nervous, he didn't let it show. And when journalists went back to Whitlam for a response, he seemed just as confident. So if neither side backs down, is chaos then inevitable? In many respects, it would. Well, sir, then why don't you give in? I shan't. It's not just my government. It is the future of parliamentary democracy in Australia as we know it. The whole system was now jammed. Neither Whitlam nor Fraser would budge. So attention started to turn to the only other person who could sort out the stalemate. It's now becoming increasingly clear that the Governor-General may be the key figure in any resolution of the constitutional crisis. Can the Governor-General intervene in some way? Well, the Governor-General will undoubtedly at some stage be called on to play a role here. But exactly what role the Governor-General could play was actually very unclear. Technically, the Governor-General did have the power to fire the Prime Minister. 
but also the Governor-General is supposed to follow the advice of the Prime Minister. And if that's not confusing enough, the Prime Minister can also fire the Governor-General, so they can fire each other. And that fact was central to the dynamic between the two men. Throughout this whole period, Gough Whitlam projected an air of supreme confidence. Whitlam felt sure that Kerr would not use the full powers at his disposal. But what he didn't realise was that this confidence was getting under Kerr's skin. Secretly, Kerr resented the fact that Whitlam underestimated his willingness to act. A series of incidents fed that resentment. The first of these incidents came on the very day that the opposition blocked supply, on the 16th of October. That day, the Malaysian Prime Minister happened to be in town. There's a formal dinner at Government House at Yarralumla. It's right at the start of the crisis. The journalist Paul Kelly was following the event closely. They're all there. Kerr, Whitlam, Fraser, other dignitaries. And they're joking beforehand. And as they allude to the crisis, Whitlam says, in a typical Whitlam joking aside, he says, well, it could be a question of whether I get to the Queen first for your recall or whether you get in first with my dismissal. This is Whitlam to Kerr. They all joked. They all laughed. But for Kerr, this was no joke. It sent the shivers down his spine. He was the Prime Minister, alluding to the possibility that Whitlam might actually try and get Kerr sacked as Governor-General if Whitlam felt that Kerr was not sufficiently accommodating of his strategy. And this comment, this joke from Whitlam, just convinced Kerr even more that he could not trust Whitlam, he could not confide in Whitlam, and above all, above all, he could not indicate to Whitlam any reservations he may have had about Whitlam's tough-it-out strategy. At a time when he needed Kerr on side more than ever, Whitlam was treating him with disdain. The very next day, Whitlam went on TV and publicly undermined Kerr's authority again. So must Sir John Kerr accept your advice, whatever advice you give? Unquestionably. The Governor-General takes the advice from his Prime Minister and from no one else. And must act on that advice? Unquestionably. The Governor-General must act on the advice of his Prime Minister. Four days later, Sir John Kerr asked for permission to consult directly with the opposition leader, Malcolm Fraser, and Whitlam quickly agreed. He was just that confident that Kerr was on his side. Maybe he even thought that Kerr would help him to heap the pressure on Fraser. That same night, Fraser went to see Kerr. As you've heard, the leader of the opposition, Mr Fraser, was called to see the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr. Sir John has also seen the Prime Minister. Considering the present crisis and Sir John's key role in it, any meeting like this is bound to be seen as most significant. When Fraser arrived at Kerr's residence, he was given a drink and sat down for what would become a very long chat. We now know quite a lot about this first meeting, and it's extraordinary. It's the first meeting during the crisis between the Governor-General and Malcolm Fraser. The conversation lasts about an hour. They have a drink. They settle down. And Fraser explains to Kerr that the opposition have taken this decision. They will not retreat. He makes it clear that he believes the Governor-General has got a role to play in the crisis... So he's putting the onus onto Kerr. So in this first meeting, the question of dismissal comes up and they are discussing it. Paul Kelly has pieced together a series of separate accounts of this meeting to detail what was said. And according to these accounts, the discussion went much further than just raising the question of dismissal. The Governor-General indicated that he had concerns about his position. He was worried about the possible threat of dismissal from Whitlam. Now, if that happened, that's extraordinary. If that happened, it means that this first meeting, Kerr sends a signal to Fraser that he, the Governor-General, is worried that Whitlam might move against him. So this would be a piece of 
enormous tactical advantage to Fraser. In public, Fraser refused to say what he and Kerr had spoken about. But whatever it was, it was information that Whitlam didn't have, and it gave Fraser an advantage. Mr Fraser, why did the Governor-General call you to Government House yesterday? Well, it was a private conversation, and uh, it was a very friendly conversation, but uh, I think it would be improper to say what the nature of it was. Where Whitlam had been publicly putting Kerr in his place, Fraser now went out of his way to flatter him. I believe it was uh, quite improper for the Prime Minister on two major national television programs to say the Governor-General will do this, the Governor-General must do that, the Governor-General must do, as I said. The monarch has got a position, the Governor-General has got a position, and it is quite wrong for a political leader to say that the monarch or the Governor-General must do as I say. There is an independence and an obligation to preserve the constitutional processes and I have every confidence in our Governor-General. It was now early November. Supply had been blocked for more than three weeks and an intense pressure surrounded everything and everyone in Parliament House. Paul Kelly was running around like a headless chicken. Every night he sat down at his typewriter to write his copy and try to make sense of the chaotic 24 hours that had just unfolded. Every night is a blind panic. Every night we're trying to sort out what the hell is going on in this crisis. We know we're getting close to the showdown. So on this one particular night, he sits down to write. It's Thursday the 6th of November. We know it can't go on for much longer. I spoke to Labor members. I spoke to the Whitlam's advisers on a daily basis. They were rock solid. We're going to prevail. Curse with us. The opposition eventually have got, have got no option but to crack. I'd probably started writing at that stage. But Kelly wants to know what the opposition is thinking. Earlier that day, Fraser had met with Kerr for a fourth time. Now Kelly wanted to see if there was any sign of a change. I went down to Fraser's office, the opposition leader's office, about 6.30pm. And, of course, what you're trying to do all the time is assess, well, where both leaders are and what might happen in this extraordinary battle of nerves and brinkmanship. And I knew that Fraser had seen the Governor-General that day, so this was a clearly very important day. Paul Kelly knew that Fraser wouldn't tell him what was actually said at this fourth meeting, but he wanted to get up close with him. He wanted to try to read his face. He needed to get a glimpse of what he was really thinking. I wanted some guidance. I was about to write my story. And I asked him how he felt at this point the issue was likely to be resolved. The thing that struck me about him was just the the confidence he radiated. And it was a different sort of confidence to Goff's. Goff's confidence was always uh, temperamentally induced. He'd declare with a red face that he was never more confident of anything in his life than prevailing with the Governor-General, prevailing in this crisis. Fraser was different. Fraser was determined but contained, calm, calm, uh, in control of himself, measured. I said to Fraser, how is this crisis going to be resolved? What's your view about what the solution will prove to be? And he looked at me coldly in the eye and said with the utmost confidence, I believe the Governor-General will intervene and he will dismiss Gough Whitlam as Prime Minister. How do you react to that comment? I was shocked. This is the greatest game of high-stakes constitutional poker we've ever seen. But... Is Fraser just playing the politics of brinkmanship or does Fraser have a real inkling that this is going to happen? Of course, back then, Paul Kelly was just going off what he could read from Fraser's face. But now he's got a much clearer picture of exactly what was said at that fourth meeting between Fraser and Kerr. We now know what Fraser said to the Governor-General earlier that day at Yarralumla. And what he said earlier that day was extraordinary. He said to Kerr that Kerr had 
obligations and responsibilities as Governor-General to resolve the crisis, and if he did not intervene to resolve the crisis, then the opposition would have to go public. They would have to go public, criticising Kerr for failing to face up to his responsibilities. Now just let that sink in. Because up until this point, the opposition had been playing very nicely with the Governor-General. But Fraser was now threatening to turn on him in a very public way. Fraser threatened Kerr that day at Yarralumla. No question. This was Fraser's belief that he had the upper hand and that Kerr would ride with him. Paul Kelly says the decision to allow Kerr and Fraser to meet with each other was a catastrophic mistake by Whitlam. By agreeing with this, Whitlam showed, one, his naive confidence in Kerr, and two, his complete underestimation of Malcolm Fraser. Fraser exploited brilliantly these conversations he had with Kerr. And Whitlam, Whitlam again, was just proven to be tactically inept. The timer was almost at zero. The supply crisis was now in its third week and the government was almost out of money. Something had to give. And right at the moment when things were at their most tense, Whitlam did something totally unexpected. He did something that managed to top every other crazy thing that had happened up to this point. Gough Whitlam decided to pick a fight with the CIA. It was a fight that had been brewing since Labor took office, after Whitlam's Attorney-General had raided ASIO and made worse by Whitlam threatening to cancel the agreement for Pine Gap. But it all came to a head on a dusty football field in Port Augusta, South Australia. It was a hot day and Gough Whitlam was set to give a speech. He walked up to a microphone in front of a few rows of spectators who were baking in the relentless sun. It's getting very uncomfortable for me, you know. I'm in the process of demolishing the fifth Liberal leader. Whitlam started his speech in the way he started most of his speeches during this period, delivering a barrage of criticism about Malcolm Fraser, the Liberal Party, and their partners, the Country Party. We must make it plain to the Australian people who are the guilty men. Because Mr Fraser, when he took over... For the few assembled members of the press, the speech covered topics that by now were very familiar that if a government had been elected, it was entitled to govern for its three-year term. And he made an exception. He said, unless there are reprehensible circumstances. And as the pressure has grown on him from the country party leaders, as the pressure built up from the newspaper proprietors, he forgot his principles. He was casting round for some reprehensible circumstances. And he's never been able to find any at all. It was at this point that Whitlam departed from the prepared speech. Every weekend he gets more and more desperate in his abuse of me. And the country party leaders too. And that's when he accused the opposition of being funded by the CIA. But I've had no associations with CIA money in in Australia, as Anthony has. Anthony was Doug Anthony, the leader of the country party. And I can only imagine that look reporters would have been giving each other. Did, did I just hear him say, did, did he just say, but then just in case anyone missed it, he said it again. And they're getting more and more desperate, these men who are subsidised by the CIA. Whitlam gave no evidence for his claim. He just said it. All hell broke loose. Mr Anthony, is it true that you were involved in any way with the CIA? Well, if I am, I don't know about it. So you're saying that this is just a pure attempt to discredit without any proof whatsoever? Well, I certainly don't know what he's referring to, and I wish he'd come out in the open instead of making innuendos. Where do you think the story started, then? Oh, it's hard to explain where or how. Everything that the Prime Minister does at the moment, but obviously he's going to try and discredit anybody who is challenging him or exposing him. 
the news about Whitlam's remarkable accusation was bouncing around the world. And for American reaction to Mr Whitlam's statement about the CIA, Ray Martin is on the line from New York. American news reports mention today the charges made by Prime Minister Whitlam against the CIA. But they were merely passing reference. To this day, no evidence has ever been produced to support Whitlam's claims that Doug Anthony was associated with the CIA. So Anthony was genuinely baffled. The accusation was that a guy who'd rented a house from him through a real estate agent was ex-CIA. But the US government publicly denied that the guy was a CIA agent. So on November 6th in Parliament, Doug Anthony turned the tables on Whitlam and demanded that Whitlam back up his claims with evidence. What Anthony didn't know was that the guy renting his house was actually a former CIA agent. And not only that, he'd been involved in setting up that secret US base in the desert called Pine Gap. And the US really didn't want any of that made public. Anthony knew none of this. So Whitlam prepared to tell him, and tell the entire nation in a speech to Parliament. He would be confirming the identity of a CIA agent and contradicting the US government's public denials. The CIA got wind of Whitlam's plans and immediately sent a message threatening to sever intelligence connections with Australia. The security community went into meltdown. But Whitlam never got to deliver that evidence in Parliament. Because on the day he was due to deliver it, the 11th of November, he was sacked in the next episode of The 11th. The crisis erupts. There is a small rumour going around the lobbies at the present time. Extraordinary scenes, the like of which probably hasn't been seen too many times before. All hell broke loose. It was a moment of autocracy for the next four hours in Australia. Mr Whitlam's office has literally been cleared out. What he then did is truly shocking. been listening to an ABC podcast. If you're looking for another great podcast that will make you feel brainier, try a daily dose of The Signal. It's a show to help you cut through the noise to cover the biggest stories, explaining not only what is happening, but why. The Signal is entertaining and only 15 minutes, so perfect for your daily commute. Listen for free on the ABC Listen app or on podcast apps like Apple and Google.